Hello and welcome to the Passcast. I'm Callum Henderson. On this week's episode, as the COP26 Climate Change Conference takes place in Glasgow, I spoke to three archaeologists about how studying past coastal change can help us tackle the climate crisis of today. Oliver Hutchinson, Danielle Newman and Lawrence Northall all work for the Coastal and Intertidal Zone Archaeological Network, or CITIZAN for short. CITIZAN has recently undertaken a project focusing on Mercy Island in Essex, recording how human action and other factors has affected the coastline over the last century. The team wrote up their findings in the latest issue of Current Archaeology, which you can also read online at the PAST website. There's a link to it in this episode's description. So here's my conversation with Lawrence, Oliver, and answering my first question, Danielle. Okay, guys, thanks very much for joining me. I was just wondering to begin with if you could give me an introduction to Citizen and what it does. Sure. Um, (laughs) So uh, Citizen is the Coastal and Intertidal Zone Archaeological Network, and we are a heritage lottery funded project based within the Museum of London Archaeology Services. And our work is really based around a citizen science response to the physical climate driven threats of the of coastal heritage. Uh, so there are lots of people who are keen to get involved in archaeology projects. And this one offers something fairly unique, given the level of access to a huge range of archaeological features that we have. Um, and it's based on the idea that there are there are over 6,000 miles of coastline, coastline for people to monitor, and 12 archaeologists isn't really enough to, to do this. Um, so the project uses a, a bespoke app that allows our citizen scientists to record and monitor coastal and intertidal archaeological sites uh, that they see on the foreshore. Um, and we also, we run a, a, a wide range of sort of guided low tide trails, uh, community survey days, and, and all sorts of sort of digital and in-person events. I would just add that um, we concentrate our efforts in six discovery programmes around England. So we don't do the entire coastline. We, at least we don't do the entire coastline ordinarily. Sometimes if there's a kind of emergency site, we will go outside our region. But our areas are South Devon Rivers, uh, Liverpool Bay, Humberside, Mersey Island, East Kent Coast, and Solent Harbours. Um, so your surveys, you undertake these archaeological surveys which examine areas of the coastline which have been threatened by erosion and tidal scour. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what these surveys have helped to reveal in the past? Sure. I mean, I, th- I think kind of one of the, the main things that we we learn through all of these discovery programmes is basically it's a case of lost landscapes, right? So the, the project looks at changing sea levels um, throughout history, throughout human history, really. Um, and what we're seeing now is that the level of erosion in a lot of places is just revealing these, uh, for example, in, in Essex, they're prehistoric landscapes where we see evidence of natural barriers, I suppose, natural buffers against the threat of, of coastal erosion. So there's quite a little bit to learn from the environments that people were living in and how they often protected coastal, coastal settlements, coastal habitat, um, coastal habitations that's not a word is it callum i think it's a word habitations (laughs) coastal sites it doesn't matter it can be a word from now on (laughs) i think i think as well i I guess for for me and i think you as well um where the project started looking at archaeology um and trying to interpret what we were seeing what i think has become more apparent as the the years have gone on is actually just how useful the archaeological remains are as a proxy for coastal change now and particularly the speed and the scale that that's kind of taking place at um which i think really kind of like neatly leads on to the the kind of 
changing mind, change, uh, changing coast, changing minds project, because that's really where we we start from with that. Yeah, you could say the really the, the thing that's been re- revealed is is the stories, um, mm-hmm. the stories of how of how our interaction with this landscape has changed and how the changing landscape has affected us, um, and that's been uh, that's been a really wonderful story that Citizen has been able to to tell. Yeah, I'd add, as well, I think it's interesting that as well as recording specific sites that we focus on there are kind of site types that are unique to the intertidal zone. Like, for example, fish traps need to be between low water and high water in their time of use so people can access catch. And then Red Hills, for instance, uh, salt production sites that require salt water to be easily transportable to an area that wouldn't get wet because of harsh. So you get these sites that are uniquely intertidal zone sites. And we also that becomes a big feature of our understanding of the coastal change through providing sort of indicators. And, and all these things are so important because we're an island nation here. And so everything, everything is connected by, by water, really. And that's still uh, still the case today, even as it was in the past. So I, I was just going to say, obviously, we're unique in the environment that we work in. But I think what's also unique about this as an archaeological project people can get involved in is just the access to the archaeological remains that that we have on the foreshore, right? These things are exposed daily um, and they're continually exposed and, and obviously eroded away and that's part of the project. But people really do get the opportunity to be very up close and involved with the material that they're recording, the material that they're looking at, much more so than you would with a terrestrial excavation, which obviously can take a lot of time and is quite a slow process. So, you know, it's quite, um, it's quite a dynamic way for people to get involved in archeology. span yeah, and people know their foreshores intimately, and they see the they see the heritage eroded as it comes out. But you know, when they walk their dogs, or when they work work on the foreshore, when they work on the foreshore, I'll repeat that one. <laughs> when they work on the foreshore, so um, um, you're dealing with a kind of archaeology that is very meaningful and present to the community, rather than permanently hidden, um, as Oliver was saying, with some terrestrial kind of sites. Yes. So the the article that you've written for the latest issue of Current Archaeology is on this Changing Minds, Changing Coasts project. Can you tell me a bit more about that and whereabouts it's based? Um, yeah, so Changing Minds, Changing Coasts was was based on Mersey Island and Essex. It's a, it's a pilot project, really, and it was very generously sort of co-funded by the Natural Environment Research Council. And it was really um, an effort to continue with research into the um, natural environment um, during pandemic and lockdown conditions. So very little access, if any, to the site or to the volunteers. So it's how do we continue to do public research, community-led research under those conditions? Um, and what we came up with was, again, this, this idea of using archaeology as the kind of the starting point for people to talk about coastal change. So the um, exposure of these various different features for people throughout their lifetimes um, they're quite memorable events in some cases, or at least we've learned that they are. So if you can imagine, you know, as a young person visiting the beach every day and sort of over the course of a couple of weeks, a hundred metre long line of posts suddenly emerges from the mud. It's kind of, it's quite a memorable thing, right? And, and that has been proven by the, the oral histories that we've captured as part of the project. So it's really sort of trying to use archaeology in a slightly different way to approach not just the archaeology itself, but, but what's taking place around it. Um, yeah, so the the aim was to map coastal change through memories of um, a community and also images that they have, um, sometimes hidden in personal quest- personal collections, um, and use these to try and map 
how the coast has changed in 20-year time increments um, using indicators of change, which we pin down as um, state of the foreshore, um, so the kind of health of the foreshore at that time, the extent of the foreshore, um, so how far a kind of um, a creek edge or um, um, a marshland edge um, was from the sort of tide line, Archaeological indicators would be things like wrecks that might have, say, say, been exposed at some low tides, but then over time, they no longer were exposed. So people could use them as a measure of the change of uh, sea level rise. Um, then the tide line itself, quite often from maps and things like that, or memories. Um, cultural practices. So um, some cultural practices that people performed on the foreshore, like, for instance, winkling, um, weren't possible with the decline of winkles obviously, and um, other things like, for example, turf cutting in areas that had very good grasses became no, was no longer possible when the salinity increased and the grasses changed to be less usable in that way. Uh, and then also biodiversity would be the kind of wildlife and the sea grasses that were present. Um, yeah, and so through that, we kind of managed to map the change in those time periods and also um, through the oral history, histories, understand some of the factors that may have influenced the change um, and also some of the processes um, which, which the change took. One of the other things to sort of stress is that one of the things that was really important as part of the of sort of the the public engagement with science call that we had from NERC is that this had to be a completely different way of us thinking about our about our research and about our project and had to be uh, something that we hadn't really touched before. Um, so for us, we were able to sort of dive into these these archives and these sort of specific uh, bits of, uh, of of information that we knew were in the community and we had sort of been engaging a bit with because obviously we talk a lot with people on the island and with our volunteers and so on. Um, but this was really a wonderful opportunity for us to to trial and to do a a, a really good pilot study of, of how all this information can be gathered, how it can be brought together, and what methodologies work well with when you're working with uh, a community group and with volunteers, and you can't necessarily have physical access to them. You can't necessarily go out and see see the sites and, um, and talk to people um, in person. Um, so I think that's yeah that that was something that really this this project sort of highlighted for all of us was just a a way to to trial these new uh, new methodologies and develop something that at least for the three of us uh works with all of our interests and with our our specialties and uh with the strengths that we have as a team it's probably worth mentioning that of course i mean we are archaeologists we're not environmental scientists so the the indicators that we selected were kind of they were developed with the community because these were things that were poignant to them so they could remember instances involving each one of those those indicators so you know the loss of shellfish that kind of thing which which come out in the study so i mean it, they were really kind of they were also a, a pilot not necessarily directly associated with the things that you know mm. uh, coastal morphologists might might link to coastal change but they were very much things that that would help us to analyze and and just sort of provoke memories i suppose in the people that took part so it's very much a kind of it's a a community-led view of coastal change rather than necessarily your usual scientific indicators as it were but they still mm. worked very well yeah, and also we kind of learned a lot about the methodology as we did it. I mean, some of our tactics were better than others and we adapted some tactics. For, for instance, we came up with a kind of like 
uh, for the oral histories, we came up with a quiz where we were sending around um, postcards to people to try and get like a kind of um, a poll on the period of time that people thought that um, a postcard dated from. Um, and that's not something that we'd originally planned. So it, it kind of the methodology was kind of growing throughout the project. And I think we learned a lot about how we how we could go about such such a project. Well, the, the amazing thing about the quiz is that uh, really what we realized is that the images could act as an aid memoir to people. So we showed them uh, an image and the first questions we'd ask them was what date range do you think this falls into? Mm. Um, so often we were asking we were asking for postcards where we weren't entirely sure um, sort of when they when they might have come from and we're hoping that something in the image would jog a memory. Um, and the the bonus of this is that a huge amount more specific memories came back relating to that time and that image, uh, which was really useful for us to be able to, to then um, investigate more and to and to help our interpretations um, and this was a back and forth that happened quite a bit with the local with the, with the local volunteers who were working with us uh, because we wanted to make sure that we were telling their stories in the way they remembered them and that they were that they were happy with the with the interpretations that we were putting out and that really um, we were facilitating this because um, that's that's what we that's what we did throughout all of this was facilitate their memories of coastal change uh, through images, through oral histories, through maps, um, so that we could tell this really poignant story of of change and how quickly change can happen on the coast. Do you think we could talk a bit more about the sites that you chose in particular? I know we've done a little bit already, and why they were chosen, and sort of what you found from them. Yeah, I mean, we we the, it wasn't so much sites as zones that we um we picked that have sites within them. Um, the two areas were East a point in East Mersey, an area there, and then one on West Mersey. And um, it was useful to use those two zones because um, they're kind of different in the way that they are exposed to erosion. The eastern zone is much more seaward, vulnerable. And the, the Western zone is more kind of varied and dynamic. It's got creeks and islands. So it was useful to have two extremes to use as a kind of comparative within the study. And um, uh, what else would I say about choosing them? Um, Oliver, you want to continue? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the other big reasons that we picked them is they've always been kind of tourist hotspots, if you will. So they're local places where people on the island have gathered for hundreds of years. So based on that, we kind of knew that we might have access to a larger number of photographs. So there's more likely to be the evidence kind of that we're looking for. And that I think transpired to be the, the case really, because mm -hmm. I mean, there are a number of old postcards in particular that would document areas sort of in between these two places on the Southern shore, but predominantly most of the visitors to Mersey and the people who live there uh, visit those spaces so they were they were kind of a logical starting point for that yeah and also there are areas that are particularly high in archaeology that we're aware of though that may also be a consequence of the fact that they're they get more footfall yeah and i think the last thing to add is that sort of collectively we've been visiting the the island for about four or five years now and and these are sites that we knew had had dramatic changes even in that short time frame um, so we were really interested before we began the project, we were really interested in looking back and seeing whether the scale of erosion had changed, had increased, had it always been consistent and, and so on on the sites. Um, and from talking to the volunteers and other local people, it, it gave us 
a, a very good indication that there had been dramatic changes. Um, so this was just a, a way of uh, an opportunity, really, to, to formalize uh, a lot of the a lot of the local conversations that we'd had, and uh, and focus on these two sites that we knew these these changes had occurred. I was going to ask if you could su- su- summarize the entire period, the the century. Uh, it's quite a big ask, I know, but <laughs> maybe very briefly, if you could sort of sum it up in a, a soundbite. No, I, I I think the main point to stress from it all is that it's very much a combination of natural and human-driven factors of change. And those have worked in tandem with each other to exacerbate the problem. So whereas nature would perhaps have taken its course a little slower, we have, or I say we, the, the good folks of Mersey in the last 100 years and, and the area have sped that change up through unintended consequences of, of a lot of things. So for example, the farming, agriculture, um, fertilizers, those being washed into the river, those having a damaging, a damaging effect on the ecology of the, of the estuary, killing off a lot of important grasses, seagrasses, and that in turn destabilized the salt marsh, which was the precisely protective ring around the island. Um, and of course, uh, increasing storms and things over the last sort of 20 years have, have played their part in destroying the sea walls and things. Um, but again, that's just a factor of, of the damage done by, by harming the balance of nature in the estuary. Yeah, I'd, I'd also say that the processes are very interconnected. So where people quite readily think about erosion, they sometimes forget that the consequence of erosion is a lot of displaced sediment. So the kind of accretion and sometimes even beaches forming in more sheltered areas are a, di- a direct uh, consequence of erosion, um, which add to things like longshore drift, um, etc. So in, in the same way, I think the processes are also very interconnected. The thing that, that, that comes out of it, really, I think that we we sort of crystallised on as we were getting towards the end of analysing all of these photos and, and these oral histories, is that you've got a series of stories where climate change and human action have very much affected people's lives, people's homes, and and the, the kind of the landscape in which they, they live and operate. And it's kind of the stories that they've put together that we're hoping would have an effect on younger generations within the community to take some slightly more positive action or, or, or to lobby perhaps for different approaches to looking after the coast than those that we have today. So it's trying to get the community to kind of think almost within itself about um, about change and loss, really, and, and our influence over it. You, this was this is a sort of new way of doing things. This model of um, the surveys. Do you think you'll apply it to different areas across the country? Is this yeah? Obviously, we're, we're, a, we're yeah. we're really excited and we've really enjoyed working on this project. And and it's always the the hunt for for more funding and for greater things ahead. So we've got lots of ideas about how this could expand out, how we could work with other communities, and how we could start linking up. Uh, different communities together and looking at issues that affect uh, some communities, other communities, what indicators occur where and, and so on and so forth. So there's lots of really exciting things to be done. And the nice thing is that this is a methodology that doesn't require a lot of money to implement at all. It, it just requires talking to the community uh, and getting them on board. Uh, so it's uh, it's something that we're, we're hoping that other other groups will take on board as well, um, because it's it's really changed how we how we look at Mersey Island and how we look at the at the near past uh, of, of the place. And um, we've really enjoyed we've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's 
for us, the, I suppose the, the exciting thing, for me at least, I'm sure it's for the other two guys, is that this is a very small study, right? We had 10 or so volunteers, and that produced a huge amount of images for this archive. It's over 300 images. But if you can imagine if you expand this model and you try to capture more of the community, I mean, if you think about the amount of data that's actually held within people's personal archives, it's, it's kind of relatively untapped for this reason. Um, so the opportunity to expand it, which is what we're planning to do, and we're, we're kind of in the process of moving that forward, um, is to try and capture more data and to see how much more resolution we can bring to this story. Where we were doing it in 20 year intervals, can we do it in 10, you know, can we tell the story with a lot more detail? Um, and also working with other with other experts or expanding the people that we that we work with so we can so we can work with geomorphologists we can work with environmentalists we can work with people who work in in these different areas and bring their expertise on board um, so instead of us sort of in, interpreting all these things to the best of our ability we'll have the experts and we'll be able to work with them to help interpret these uh, these events and also I think what's exciting for me is that it sh it shows the local communities as being themselves experts in their own foreshore heritage and their own foreshore environment and breaks down, I think, traditional barriers that are quite often there between professional archaeologists and local communities. Um, and it kind of, you get this symbiotic relationship where both interested parties benefit in the long run. Yeah, Lawrence is absolutely right. We just facilitated this, really, uh, yeah. and, and 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 wrote the reports. That's mm -hmm. that's our uh, that, that's oh, our big contribution. Give yourself some credit. Oh, yeah, we, we did have fun. Out. We did we did have some <laughs> yeah, fun. We did out. We yeah, we, we did. did it all. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you. That was very nice to talk to you. Cool. Yeah, thanks thank you. very much, Callum. That was Oliver Hutchinson, Daniel Newman, and Lawrence Northall talking to me there. And don't forget that you can read their article in the latest issue of Current Archaeology as well as online at the past website. That's all for this week. Thanks to my three guests and to you for listening. We hope you'll join us again soon.